0: Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. This episode's speaker is Emmy Award-winning Cheryl Atkinson, author of the new book Slanted and host of Full Measure. Cheryl spoke about the modern news media landscape, from fake news to fact-checkers, and how rapidly it's changed. All recorded live here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. So get some pepper jelly on your bagel and take a sip of your Thai tea because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studios intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studios intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind the scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the career tab to
1: learn more. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you for the nice introduction. Thank you for having me come here you know during the introduction they talked about me working at CNN it really makes me think how how much has changed i was there when cnn was a news organization a real news organization in the 1990 time frame and it's changed so much and that is a whole chapter in my new book slanted and um i think one thing i was able to do that really sheds a lot of light on what's happened in the news is i talked to current and former cnn insiders as well as current and former executives and reporters from the New York Times, from ABC, NBC, MSNBC, virtually every big broadcast organization, news division presidents, and they spoke to me really candidly about what I call the devolution of the news as we once you knew it, and I'm assuming a lot of you are fairly young and may not remember a time, sort of the time I was educated during maybe mid-1980s, when we were taught at least I was taught at the University of Florida the news was sort of a straight thing where you do your reporting you present various sides and viewpoints and facts but you don't put your own opinion in the hard news story you don't tell people what you think because who cares and you're usually not an expert on the topic anyway you're getting information and expertise from others but maybe all you know today if you're pretty young is this news environment we have today where that's all changed and it's really only changed relatively quickly in the last few years. I would say the big start of this was about the 2015-16 time frame, this election, the election cycle. And this is a new thing to so many of us who have been into journalism for decades because this is not how we were taught things work. You watch the New York Times today or you read the paper, there was a time when they would not have blended the reporter's opinion as if it's a fact unattributed in a hard news piece on the front page. And they do it all the time now. The reporters at the Times write articles pretending to know the mind sort of like a novel, to be inside the mind of the person they're reporting on or criticizing. For example, Donald Trump. There are articles that say what he was thinking and what he was doing when he was alone in a room one night. Of course, they don't have any information as to whether that could be true or not. They're just going by, I guess, what somebody told them, not attributing it. Again, this is the stuff that may have been written in novels or opinion pieces just a few years back that's now passing itself off as hard news. This is a huge shift and a huge change. And there's a very powerful industry driving it, an industry of made up of politicians and politicos and corporations and PR firms and nonprofits and LLCs and blogs and super PACs. That all work together to control narratives, control information, control the news. And one big reason I think why we're seeing the news so compromised today for a long time, you know, since at least 2000, when I've been studying this phenomenon and realizing what was going on, um, there were many powerful forces working to influence the news, but now they are the news. We have invited them into our newsrooms, these political operatives and corporate interests they work as reporters and editors, you know, we're we're one in the same. This is something that wouldn't have happened again just maybe 10 years ago because at least to the degree it is today, we try to have at least the appearance of somewhat of a firewall between our news reporters and the special interests, but now it's all blended together. And I think that explains why when there are so many, as I call them, media mistakes, I mean, the likes of which I've never seen before since about 2016, with New York Times, Washington Post, the major network, CNN, making so many factual errors and mistakes in their reporting. And there was a time when if you made one big mistake like that, you probably would be risking your job. But now, over and over again, the same people and the same companies and the same news outlets are making the same really big journalism mistakes that shouldn't be made even in journalism school. You, You learn these things, some of these remedial errors, you learn not to do your first year and then there's oftentimes little repercussion and I think that's because it's mission accomplished the people working in the newsrooms in many cases are equal to political or corporate operatives so they're not punished when they get something wrong they they accomplished their goal they got out a narrative even if it had to be corrected later because they know that most people won't see the correction they'll see the original news narrative so I thought I would ask a couple of, answer a couple of questions that I ask myself because these are commonly asked before I take some from you guys. But the first one is, and I've spoken about this in a uh, TEDx talk that I did. If you're interested in hearing more, you could just Google Atkinson and TEDx, or you could Google probably what is fake news or is fake news real? And in there, I define or I talk about what is fake news. Because a lot of people, when I go speak and I ask who they think invented the phrase in it's modern context. I mean, it's been used for a long time, but I mean, in the past couple of years, most people think Donald Trump came up with the phrase and popularized it. And what they don't know, as I traced in my book, The Smear, this is a phrase that was really put on the forefront by a nonprofit called First Draft, which was started at the beginning of the 2015 election cycle. This fake news phrase and the notion that somebody had to step in and tell us what was real and what was not, that's a relatively new concept in terms of how we're using it today. And about the time First Draft started, and I only know this in retrospect because I didn't know at the time there was a nonprofit called First Draft, but shortly after that, I think it was September 2016, President Obama gave a speech at Carnegie Mellon in which he said, somebody would need to step in and curate information in this wild wild west media environment and i remember at the time hearing that speech and thinking what's he talking about because because again if you're fairly young you may not know that this is a relatively new concept that some third party should come in and get between us and our information and curate it for us and tell us what's real and filter it and fact check it that's all nobody was was clamoring for that at least the average citizen had not raised that it was not considered a problem nobody was talking about it but as soon as president obama put this on the public stage this notion and first draft was in the background also about the same time talking about fake news almost on a daily basis from that moment on you can check and it was fake news supposed fake news was making headlines in the new york times and the washington post and they were flagging all the fake news. And in every case, at least if you looked at First Draft's website at the time, the fake news they were flagging was always conservative fake news. There was no liberal fake news in their view. So it made me sort of think, is there a special interest behind this, as there often is? And their definition of fake news was more or less, I mean, it's come to be an all encompassing, just things that people don't like or opinions they disagree with. But in the beginning, they were flagging primarily totally fake conservative websites that would make completely false claims, such as the Pope had endorsed Bernie Sanders or something that hadn't happened. And then it came to be where that definition was used and broadened a little bit by people in the news. They started talking about, again, stuff that maybe they differed or disagreed with as fake news. And then the conservatives came up with their own punchback, And Donald Trump led the way. He started calling them fake news. And his definition, or the conservative definition of fake news, came to be more mainstream media outlets that were misreporting, or getting their facts wrong, or showing bias in their stories. And that that was their definition of fake news. So the left had its definition, the right had its definition. But I would have to say, Donald Trump being the master marketer, he would go to the rallies, as you know, and every time point to the fake news, it became sort of his rallying cry. And pretty soon, because he was so successful at what I call a hostile takeover of the phrase fake news, the people who started it were kind of like begging everybody not to use that term anymore, because I think he had been very successful at co-opting it. In fact, in January of 2017, I think the Washington Post wrote an article and said, it's time to retire the term fake news. And they had been using it, but they didn't like how it was being turned and twisted around. I go through all that to say that I went and researched um, who started first draft, this nonprofit, because these things don't happen by accident. This movement where right before the election, President Obama comes out and says, our information has to be curated when nobody had and the public had really been clamoring for any such thing why did first draft come on the scene and sure enough first draft it turns out was started at the beginning of the election cycle by can you guess um it was funded by google and google's parent company alphabet was run by a big 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 democrat supporter hillary clinton guy named eric schmidt who i think was a top donor to bernie sanders a top donor to hillary clinton volunteered for her campaign so this is the money backing this effort to go after supposed fake news, in their view, all conservative. And it starts to look like, like many things do to me when you dig into them, a, an effort to shape public opinion, not a true effort to get to the fact of the matter. And that's really the problem behind, as I see it, most of the curation and the media literacy and the fact check efforts that we see today is that these are not neutral parties that are funding them or backing them. And if you're like me and you've watched and read a lot of these efforts and the fact checks and these entities that claim to be the neutral arbiters, they almost always come down on one side of things. You start to know as an impartial observer or just as a news consumer, wow, they're always going to say coming around in some way that this side, that's the progressive side, is I usually find, or a certain corporate interest they're going to always say that the side that doesn't agree with their worldview is partly false or fake or not true or something, but it's hardly ever cuts the other way. And I'm talking about issues of certain medical issues when there's pharmaceutical industry backing behind a certain narrative they don't want you to to think. I'm talking about hot button issues where there's a lot of debate and scientific debate and varying opinions where they apparently don't want you to think there is. Climate change, um, how to handle racial issues, um, you know, um, abortion. I mean, many things on which there's dispute, these fact checkers and curators of information will come down on one side. So I, I think um, there's an inherent problem and we should be concerned with those who try to get between us and our information, especially when they present themselves as neutral because too often they're not.
0: Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org.
1: published an article yesterday if you want to look at it at a real clear investigations and i think the website's realclearinvestigations.com and i looked into the facebook oversight committee's ties because facebook because it's been criticized as you may know for the censorship of certain ideas and people and so on appointed a board of 20 people i think there's going to be 40 ultimately to independently you could appeal to them, and they'll check the facts, and they'll check what should and shouldn't be removed. And I found that 18 of 20 of them have ties to the progressive philanthropist and activist George Soros or his Open Society Foundations, 18 of 20. And this was widely heralded in the media and by Facebook as a diverse group of these experts who would be doing this work to make sure Facebook was being fair. And in fact, they're not very diverse at all when you look at their uh, worldview, their politics and their connections to certain sources of funding. There's nobody on there that I could find who had published or been activists on one side of an issue, but they had almost all been activists on the other side of these certain issues and almost always progressive. So, you know, when they're fact checking. These activists and advocates, which I think is not a good idea for someone who's determining what's fair to remove or to keep up. I'm not sure they should be activists and advocates, left or right. They should be maybe neutral free speech parties. But anyway, when you're going to pull from a pool of activists and advocates, as Facebook says, all of them experienced in human rights, well, you're going to get a, a fact check or a, a result that comes down a certain way. And I find this is the case really with so many of these. Media curating efforts where our information is being steered, Google, as you probably know, steers our search results in a certain direction um, again where where the pharmaceutical industry may want them to steer it where other interests I know members of Congress have called Google and the high tech companies and gotten them to make certain censorship moves i don't think an individual member of Congress should have the power. we certainly didn't elect them or I don't think they have the authority to do it, but they take it to contact a big social media company like Facebook or Twitter and tell them to take down certain stories or ideas or to censor certain things, but that's exactly what's happening now. And I think it's a very dangerous time in terms of our information and control of it. So what is fake news kind of in the eye of the beholder, but I think it was an effort and has grown into an effort to control our information, not to really stop fake news why are there so many fact checks that fall down and media curation efforts on the left side or on certain corporate interest sides versus right i will say in fairness i think corporations of all kinds would like to control the news content that we have and news narratives i think political activists and figures on left and right would like to control what we see on the news and what we read on social media but i think um it's hard not to notice that the left has been more effective at it, not that the right hasn't tried and doesn't have its own efforts to do it, but the left has been more effective partly because I think it is more embraced by the media at large. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at Media Research Center on the right and Media Matters for America, the smear left group um, headed by David Brock. I did some research Media Research Center does a lot of media criticism when they think the media has been biased and unfair. Um, media Matters actually does more. They're just a huge organization of network of nonprofits and LLCs and super PACs that all get together to boycott and do a lot of really social activism, but they are treated often by the press as if there's some sort of neutral arbiter of facts. A lot of times the press refers to their research, which is conflicted, and they have certainly have a lot of false and misleading information, but they're quoted as if there's some authority, as if Media Matters is a neutral authority. And I've even talked to reporters who don't know um, the history of what it's about and who it supports and how it was started, and they thought, because they don't do their homework, um, it's a neutral group. So I think because so many times the left views are presented and embraced by the media at large as if it's a legitimate view, whereas the conservative counterparts are not treated that way. It's why the left seems so much more successful when they're trying to control control the narratives. Um, I want to mention media literacy because that's an outgrowth of fake news when people didn't want to use that phrase anymore because they thought that maybe Donald Trump had co-opted it. It became, well, we're going to have to teach people how to learn what's fake news through media literacy efforts and a lot of these same groups such as first draft lead these media literacy efforts which again i think is too often not always but too often code for we'll tell you what to think and we're going to aim you to the same sources we want you to believe and steer you from the information we don't want you to hear about and this is very dangerous in my view because these groups under this patina of legitimacy and fairness and that they have the answer to what we should all be looking at in terms of news and information. They're partnering with academic institutions such as Harvard and major universities. They're helping uh, with groups that write laws in states that are passing that certain things be taught in public schools as young as elementary school about what children should be taught they can believe and not believe. And too often, again, it's not a critical thinking agenda. It's steering them towards certain news sources and who's backing some of these bills well again they're members of congress with ties to pharmaceutical interests and i keep bringing them up because they very much control a lot of our agenda today in many respects as to what we can find online and what the news will report and they're backing certain people by giving contributions to certain members of the legislature in a state who then propose bills to curate information a certain way and teach media literacy in schools to steer the kids away from some information and toward other information. So I think media literacy efforts, you really have to dig deep. It sounds good. Fact-checking sounds good. Going after fake news sounds good. But unfortunately, every time I think we invite third parties in to help us decide what's news or what's real, we're inviting or we're opening ourselves up to the possibility that we're going to be you know, shaped, and the information is going to be censored instead of opened up to us. Um, Social media searches. Oh, I wanted to use the example of how a narrative, we're kind of subject to narratives, even people on the news who work in the news, who don't know it or don't even mean to be. And you have to think just one step deeper than maybe you think of like you may watch the news and say I know I'm getting just a news narrative that somebody wants me to think because they're all talking about the same thing using the same language using the same phrases but you have to go an even a step further and the example I wanted to use and I did a podcast talking about this was police reform so in the wake of all of this violence and the problems over policing I would say almost every station I've listened to has reporters who will say something like, reporters and analysts, well, we all know policing needs to be reformed, but not so sure about defunding. But they start with the the caveat, well, we all agree police should be reformed. And I'm thinking about that just as an analytical thinker. Well, who knows that? These reporters and analysts who are saying it, I don't think have studied police agencies across the country. What are the issues? What does police reform mean? What are you even talking about? Reform what? Um, I doubt they're experts in it, but they have accepted the narrative, even as they think they're bucking it by saying, well, we don't need to defund the police. By agreeing that the police somehow at large must be reformed by saying those words without really knowing any information about it, they've fallen victim to the narrative. They've already agreed and accepted a little piece of the narrative unquestioningly. And as a reporter, when I was first working in the business, I covered a lot of different police departments and problems on police agencies. And I learned a lot about what some were doing wrong and the accreditation process and the responsibility of police to take people into custody peacefully if possible. Even if they're justified in using violence, the trick is to try not to have to use violence, even if you're you're allowed to based on what the suspect's doing, you want to take someone into custody without hurting them. I learned a lot about good policing, bad policing. I've covered agencies where it's been done well. I've covered agencies where it's been done poorly. But I think in fairness, based on what I know, and I probably know a little more than a lot of reporters talking about this, I think it's it's an overgeneralization to make this statement, we all know policing needs reforming. I, I'm not even sure what that means or what they mean when they say that, but I don't think there's any evidence that at large, and it may be the case, I'm just saying there's no evidence that all police agencies or the police industry needs reforming. We have a quite a good record compared to most countries when it comes to policing. There are some departments that have stellar records that I wouldn't say need much, if any, reform at all. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have a lot they could teach other agencies. On the other hand, I've worked and covered police agencies that have big problems. So, again, Beware when you hear people say things like, we all know, we all agree policing needs reform. If you don't know it, maybe they don't know it. Use your common sense and think, why are they saying that? Who wants us to think that and why? I guess that's sort of the biggest question I ask myself when I watch the news or I see narratives repeated on news and social media, or they want to squelch certain viewpoints and not have you hear them or find them. I'm always thinking, who wants me to believe that and why? You know what What they're pushing out there. I worry that We've sort of exited the golden age of information that started with the advent of the internet but seems to be drawing to a close if we don't do something about it whereby we used to be able to get pretty much most information that's publicly accessible without a lot of filtering on the internet. But now we're seeing so many efforts to filter and curate and fact check and rule out and controversialize and pull down accounts and deplatform and cancel you know, I'm afraid that your kids, or even when you get older, you won't even hardly remember a time when information was readily accessible on the internet, free from the bias of those who want to steer us in a certain direction. Um, so that's one of my biggest concerns today. Um, last point, and then I will take some questions if you have any. The government has stepped in to say maybe it needs to do something about the unfair nature of what's going on in social media censorship and that sort of thing. Democrats, um, many of them actually think more information should be censored or taken down because they think not enough, you know, not enough is being pulled down and they're criticizing big tech companies for that. Republicans tend to say too much information is being taken down and they're being specifically targeted. I just worry that when the government steps in, I'm not sure that's the answer either, because again, you're inviting a third party and believe me, every member up on Capitol Hill, they collect contributions from industries and you know different organizations. They have their own interests. Every time you invite a third party to get in the way of you and your information, I think um, it's just another chance for somebody to, to apply censorship. Um, when I talk about censorship of big tech companies, you may say to yourself, well, censorship is only when the government does it but I'm arguing in my new book, The uh, Slanted, that I think the definition of censorship I now use in a different way to apply to what the big tech companies are doing because they are inextricably tied to government and the decisions they make now. Maybe they feel they have to kowtow to what a Democrat or Republican says they should do or risk being regulated or having new laws passed against them. So I think... It's all tied so closely together that I talk about what the big tech companies do now in terms of censorship, even though it is not directly done by the hand of government.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more Breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang, with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.